0: All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. You know, one event can truly change everything. In the early 20th century, so the 1900s, there was a bunch of turmoil and tension in Europe and in Asia. And there were alliances beginning to form based on these kind of empires that were in their final years. And you know many of these names, These alliances surrounded countries like Russia and Great Britain and France, and on the opposite side we have countries like Austria-Hungary, Germany, and Italy. And this became so filled with tension that historians would then call this period and these countries the powder keg of Europe, meaning that one simple event would ignite and the whole thing would burst. And one such spark was ignited with the assassination of the Archduke, of Austria-Hungary, Franz Ferdinand, in June of 1914. One man, his life and his death, would then lead not just his country into war, but the entire world. By one man's death, the entire world was descended and plunged into the Great War, what we now know as World War I. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus will be confronted with the legitimacy of his authority. Jesus is clearly making an authoritative claim in his ministry, and he will be questioned as to why do you have a right to claim this? And he will point, he will make an appeal to one man, one man whose life and actions set off an avalanche that would change everything. The main idea of our text this morning and so the main idea of our time together is this. Jesus is the king, so submit to him in repentance. Jesus is the king, so submit to him in repentance. And we're going to look at this in two sections. The first, we're going to see the sign of authority in verses 23 to 27. And in verses 28 to 32, we're going to see the sign of submission. So, the sign of authority and the sign of submission. Let's look together, Matthew 21, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders of the day, the priest, about the ruckus he has just created. He has cleared the temple, seemingly declared open hostility against the religious structures of the day. And as we'll see in the concluding chapters of Matthew, Jesus begins to pull back the veil and issue some of his clearest, most open rebukes and condemnations about this generation of Israel. But here we see the Lord is entering the temple. He is not ashamed of the behavior that he has just demonstrated. He is not coming back into the temple with his tail tucked between his legs. He is coming in and he's teaching, presumably as he always has, with authority. Now just marvel at the sinlessness of Jesus here. Jesus has just had an outburst, an emotive, seemingly angry outburst against the state of the temple, and yet he is not ashamed. How marvelous is Jesus here, unlike us, where his Anger is expressed in such a way that it earns the approval of God and not his wrath. How different he is from us in the anger that we often exhibit. However, there is other anger in this passage, not as righteous as Jesus, but an indignation that's coming from the priest and the scribes. It's already been expressed earlier that they're angry, they're indignant, and here it issues out in a question, who gives you the right to do these things? By whose authority? Now these things is at the center of their question. And presumably it's referring to the sum total of everything that Jesus has just demonstrated. His clearing of the temple, his accepting of the praise of the people, and the singing of the children. And now, after all these things, he has the audacity to come back in, to sit in the temple, and to teach. And this is where Jesus sets himself apart, right? Throughout his ministry, Matthew has shown us that Jesus distinguished himself, not primarily through his miracles, but by his teaching. Matthew 7:28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. See, authority here is the key issue. And for the people, and specifically for his enemies, they know that authority is the issue. The question is not whether Jesus is claiming to have authority. It's of the the, uh, source of his authority. And this is probably most clear when Jesus forgives the sins of the paralytic man. Jesus says, get up and walk. But that's not the issue. The issue is what he said earlier. Son, your sins are forgiven. And they ask the question, by Who but God can forgive sins? And then Jesus answered them, So that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And while there is much hostility brewing and leading up to our text this morning, creating this powder keg of sorts, I can imagine there's really one thing that's stuck in the craw of these priests. Look back at verse 15 real quick. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, notice in our passage they call them these things, but Matthew calls them wonderful things, saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Maybe you're more holy than I am, more sanctified than I am. Do children's songs ever bug you? Do they ever get stuck in your head, driving down the road, singing Five Little Monkeys, jumping on the bed? Why am I singing this song right now? But here, the songs of children are professing a profound truth. These songs of children are rolling around in the mind of these priests And we see that Jesus actually drives salt in this wound a little more, right? Verse 16, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Haven't you read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. He quotes Psalm 8. This song that's bugging you so much, this song that is stirring up anger within your heart, it's actually God's plan. Psalm 8, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. See, it's by the songs of these children that the enemies of God are silenced. And then he'll go on later in that psalm to talk about how God has established his son to have authority over all things, and all things will be under his feet. Jesus, the Messiah of the world, is carried forward, not on a chariot of war horses, but the praises of children. And This is what the song is declaring, and this song exposes the fear of the priest. It exposes the fragility of their perceived authority. See, they know what Jesus is saying when he alludes to them. This is not a question about whether Jesus is claiming to have authority, but the legitimacy of his claim. In other words, anyone can claim the right to wear the crown, but who actually wears it? Who gives you the right to do these things? And Jesus produces a sign of his credentials. He answers their question, albeit in a way they might not have expected. He doesn't come right and say it. He asks a question. Look at verse 24. Jesus answered them. I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come from? From heaven or from man? See, Jesus' response here, this is is an aside, but Jesus' response here ought to be instructive to us. He doesn't approach this volatile situation with sheer directness, but he asks questions. He doesn't say, I am the Son of God, submit to me. Jesus, as the embodiment of the wisdom of God, asks questions. 2 Corinthians tells us that the responsibility of the church is to destroy arguments. And this is what Jesus did. He destroyed the arguments of his day. But how does he do it? Not open-handed, engaging head-on in skirmishes, but instead he draws out with questions. See, this is the difference between telling someone and letting them come to the conclusions on their own. And when Jesus does this, and when we do this in like it forces those that we're having conversations with to really nail down where they're at. It forces them to see potentially both the validity of Jesus as well as the inconsistency of their position. See, if Jesus is Lord of all, if He's the creator of all, if He's the sustainer of all, then His truth will bear out while others will crumble. So Jesus demonstrates that Asking questions is like putting water around the soil of a foundation. Will it stand? So, in your interactions, maybe this is with your children, maybe this is with your unbelieving friends and neighbors, ask questions. Proverbs 26, 45 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. See, to get an argument with a fool, what does that make you? A fool. But then what does he say? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. How do you get a fool to see his folly? How do you get someone who's deceived in their own ways to see the reality of their deception? You ask questions. You ask them to draw it out. Where do your conclusions lead? Where do your beliefs lead you? What is the significance of the things that you say and believe? What is the significance of the things you do? One of my favorite questions to ask, and this is true of myself as well as to others, by what standard? Ask them by what standard they consider success. Ask them by what standard they gauge their own morality. See, in forcing people to answer questions, they are forced to come to the conclusion of their arguments. And if the argument is not founded in Christ, then guess what, friends? It will fail. Now Jesus goes on. And as we read this in English, we can get the impression that Jesus is asking this question as a test. If you answer this question, then you have the right to hear the answer to your question. No, in fact, that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is giving them an opportunity to answer their own question. Jesus is simply saying, the source of John's authority is the same as my authority. In other words, if you understood the baptism and the ministry of John, then you understand my ministry. So Jesus gives them this question. Was John's ministry, was his baptism from heaven and therefore of God? Or was it a device and a contraption of man? Was John doing God's work or was John doing his own? Now to understand this point Jesus is making here, we need to understand the ministry of John as explained throughout Matthew. Matthew works as a narrator of John's ministry. And as we've seen throughout this book, John is the fulfillment of prophecies from Isaiah as well as Malachi. He is the messenger who prepares the way of the Lord. So, if you will, turn briefly to the previous book, Malachi chapter 3. And there's something to be said here about the fact that the New Testament or the Old Testament canon closes with Malachi. Before we're led into the ministry of John the Baptist. But look real briefly at John chapter three, I mean, excuse me, Malachi chapter three, verse one. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. See, in Malachi's day, the people were back from exile and the temple had been rebuilt after its first destruction. But at this time, it is run by twisted and corrupt Priests. So the oppression of the Jews was not primarily coming from the outside. It was from within their own internal religious system. And here is Malachi's prophecy. Because of the corruption of the priest and therefore their system, Elijah is going to come. In fact, Malachi gets so explicit in chapter 4 to say, Elijah will come. And what will Elijah do? He will announce a message of repentance. And this repentance will prepare the people to receive the Lord, who is coming like fire in judgment, where? Malachi 3.1, to his temple. And by so doing, he will create a purified temple from which his people can give him true worship. Well, we see this echoed in Matthew's introduction of John. Turn to Matthew chapter 3 now. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What is his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So we have John's words and then Matthew's narration. This is the prophet spoken of, Isaiah. Well, when he says Isaiah, it's shorthand from Isaiah and Malachi. Because listen, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you? I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather wheat, his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See so do you see the correlation? The same elements are present here. We have a corrupt religious authority. We have John as the embodiment of Elijah. This is why he's wearing the clothes that he is and living the lifestyle that he is. He announces the need for repentance and specifically, repent for the king is coming to judge with fire. See, John, and therefore Matthew, is trying to write with big, bold letters. This is the billboard on the highway. This is the the smoke riding in the sky. This is the Super Bowl commercial. In other words, Matthew does not want you to miss this. John is the fulfillment of the prophecy concerning Elijah. So therefore, Jesus is the Lord. And this is the same point that Jesus himself makes in Matthew 17. So just go a few pages over. Matthew 17, we have the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured before his disciples. And standing with them on the mountain is Moses and who else but Elijah. Elijah himself is said to be standing there with Jesus. Peter recognizes him somehow. And yet when he comes down off the mountain, Jesus makes no mention of Elijah standing there. Look at verse 10 of chapter 17. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer, certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. See, Elijah stood next to Jesus on the mountain, and Jesus says, Elijah has already come. And the disciples recognize, oh, he's speaking of John. Now back to our passage. This all might uh, seem a bit tedious. Okay, Elijah is John, big whoop. But this is the root of Jesus' argument. Jesus is questioned about his credentials. By whose authority are you doing these things? And he says, look to the ministry of John. Why John? Why John's ministry? We know now, looking at Jesus' life, that Jesus fulfilled over 400 Old Testament prophecies concerning him. Over 400. And Jesus doesn't say, look to any of those. He doesn't say, look to the fact that I walked on water. He doesn't look to the fact that I fed 5,000. He doesn't even say, look to the fact that I raised a man from the dead. By whose authority are you doing these things? And he asks, What did you think of John? Jesus could have gone any other way. But to vindicate himself, he points to the work of John. And when you think about it, it makes sense. When you look at John's ministry, he's calling for repentance, Jesus comes. And they have this argument. John says, no, Jesus, you need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, John, I need to be baptized by you to fulfill all righteousness. And when he's baptized, what happens? The Spirit of God, like a dove, descends on him, and a voice declares from heaven, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. See, if we don't get the ministry of John right, if we don't understand what John's purpose was as the fulfillment of the prophecy concerning Elijah, then we will never understand Jesus. And this was the problem of the priest of the day. They misunderstood John's ministry, and so they misunderstood John's message. This is the announcement of the authority of the Son of God. John's baptism is this event that begins the avalanche. And this avalanche will come And it will crush the temple. This was Malachi's point. John's ministry is the signal that the Lord is coming to purify the temple. So what is John's message? Repent, for the axe is laid at the root. See, John was the spark that ignited the flame that will consume the temple and all that it stands for and put in its place a new and better temple, purified for the true worship of Almighty God. See, Jesus appeals to the ministry of John because John's ministry was the writing on the wall. This was the sign that the Old Testament prophets had pointed to that would begin this ball rolling. John is the sign that the Lord is coming like a refiner's fire. Therefore, the authority of the one who would come after him is absolute. See, Jesus is the true Son of God to whom is given the nations as a heritage. Jesus is God in the flesh to whom belongs the entire earth. Jesus is the king set upon Zion's hill to rule over and reign forever. This is the awesome authority of Jesus. Authority that has been revealed to children and hidden from the wise. And we see that clearly. Look at these so-called wise men. Verse 25 and they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from, say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from, he- from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See, these priests, they make a political calculation. Should we answer him? Or should we not? If we say that we know John is from heaven, then we have to acknowledge the authority of Jesus. But they're unwilling to do that. But if they deny that John's baptism was from heaven, then the crowd might revolt against them. And here, in a stunning moment of honesty, they say six incredible words. We are afraid of the crowd. And here we see the blindness of the priest. They stand in the temple. They stand as a line of the Levi priests who are meant to carry on the worship of Almighty God. And yet here they stand before their king and their judge and they say, we're more afraid of the people than we are of you. See how foolish the fear of man will make you. See, the fear of man is when we're more concerned with what people think of us than what God thinks of us. And this was the problem that the priests fell into they felt like their position was upheld by the people but their position had been given to them by god and god was about to take it away from them see when we're more concerned about people than we are of god we're tempted to use the to use the language of ed welch to think that people are big and god is small it's a matter of perspective right like every fishing photo you've ever taken <clears throat> those directly around us they seem like they're a bigger deal They seem to pose a more immediate and more imminent danger and consequence. And this creeps into every area of our life, right? We're more concerned with our reputation at work or at school than we are about our obedience and our faithfulness. We're more concerned with having others like us than having God approve of us. We are more concerned about the reactions of the watching world than the judgments of an omniscient God. The judgment of God seems far off. It seems remote. The judgment of others seems close and pressing. Yet, as illustrated by the priest here, the judgment of God is closer than we think. And so what does Jesus do? He judges them. He judges them by not revealing to them what they should already know. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus closes this section with a simple resignation. You're not going to answer me. You're not going to get an answer from me. And so this is the sign of Jesus' authority. That John was the fulfillment of Elijah, therefore Jesus is the Lord coming to purify people and a place for his worship. But then, not only do we see a sign of authority, we see the sign of submission. Jesus then shifts to a series of parables. This is one of three that will exhibit an indictment against this current generation of Israel. Look at verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons... And he went to the first and said, "Son, go and work in the vineyard today." And he answered, "I will not." He's a brave son. But afterward he changed his mind, and he went. He's a wise son. And he went to the other son and said to the same. And he answered, "I go, sir, but did not go." Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. See, the order here is quite simple. We have two sons. One initially refuses to obey, but then changes his mind and obeys. The other gives a verbal acknowledgement of the Father's command, but ultimately does not obey. And Jesus asks, which one is the obedient son? And the priest, not dumb men, maybe foolish men, but not dumb, they recognize, well, of course, the first one is the obedient son because, you know, he actually did the obeying part. And they recognize verbal acknowledgement is not the same as obedience. But then Jesus gets to the point. There is a class of people who belong to the kingdom, and it isn't the priests, it is the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Why? Why does the kingdom belong to them? Well, because they exhibited the sign of submission, repentance. And here we see the argument unfold for our two sections. Jesus is the point of John's ministry. Repentance is the point of John's message. And that's why Jesus grounds both of these sections in the work of John. See, if you would have listened to John, if you would have heard John, you would have understand, understood my authority. You would have understood what I was coming to do. And what would you have done? You would have turned. You would have changed your mind and believed. You would have repented. And so the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and therefore all of the people that are wrapped up in their system, they professed to want to see God. They professed to want to see the king come and to rule and to reign. But when he comes, they reject him. I mean, just think about the language that they use throughout Mark's, or Matthew's gospel. Matthew 12, 38. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Matthew 16, 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. They profess to wanting to see the Lord. Yet when he appears, they didn't recognize him. These groups are the depiction of the second son. They're quick to verbally acknowledge the commands of God, but ultimately they are disobedient. Jesus will go on further in the next couple of parables to further indict this generation. He says, you were like tenant workers who didn't care for the field and didn't acknowledge the ambassadors I sent, or you are like wedding guests who are invited to the wedding but do not respond to the invitation. And through these parables, Jesus is demonstrating the bankruptcy of this generation of Israel. They were providing lip service, but there was no heart worship. So who does the kingdom belong to if not them? To the one who bears fruit. What does Jesus find when he enters the temple? Well, we've just been told it is like a fruitless tree. Only worthy to be cut down. And what did John tell us he has come to do? To lay the axe at the root of the tree. So John's message is clear. He points forward to Jesus and then he calls us to respond. And what did John say in Matthew 3.8? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that is why Jesus says that John came in the way of righteousness. The way of righteousness according to the kingdom is not perfection. That's how Blake welcomed us in earlier. It is the fact that we lack qualification that makes this good news so astounding. So it is not perfection that is required to enter the kingdom. It is repentance. And that is why the kingdom is filled with all sorts of sinners like us. 1 Corinthians 6.9 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is the problem. Sinners on their own cannot get into the kingdom. Why? Because they lack something. But what is Paul going to say? And such were some of you. Do you find your name in that list somewhere? Do you find a description of yourself in that list? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to recognize the authority of the King of heaven and turn to Him in repentance. For it is by His authority and His authority alone that He can declare sinners right And this is the point of Jesus. Jesus, in his kindness, does two things. He comes as the king and issues judgment. But in his judgment, he paves the way forward. See, repentance is the sign of submission. And a lack of repentance is the sign of rebellion. Brothers and sisters, this morning, do you lack assurance in your Christian walk? Do you wonder... Whether you belong to God, well, here's a test. Do you submit to the king? Are you acknowledging his authority by your repentance? Maybe your lack of assurance is because of your hesitancy to repent. Maybe it's because you are not obedient to the commands of Jesus. It really is that simple. To submit to Jesus is to be like the first son. To change your mind and to go. The alternative is to be the second son. And this is the problem that we face in our day and our age, and particularly Abilene. Abilene is filled with people who verbally acknowledge the lordship of Christ, but not, do not submit to him in repentance. Maybe this is you. Maybe you have claimed the name Christian, and yet you have not followed through. Why? Is it because of the risk of loss? Is it because of your concern for what you might lose if you actually follow the Lord? If you actually turn and acknowledge your sin and turn to him? Maybe your thought is, if I really follow Jesus, then I might lose my job. If I really submit to the Lord, then I might have to admit some things that I would rather be kept in the dark. If I really follow Jesus, I would have to give up on some things that I rather enjoy if i really follow jesus then i might have to say a few things to people that i don't like very much or that they won't like very much if any of these are your dilemma i want you to see the authority of jesus as the answer to that dilemma look back briefly to matthew chapter 11 it's interesting matthew chapter 11 is almost the same exact structure as our passage this morning It begins, and maybe your Bible has a heading on chapter 11 that speaks of the messengers of John the Baptist. See, John had questions. Even in his day, John had questions about Jesus. Well, Jesus answers these questions, and he points to John being the fulfillment of the passages that we read in Malachi and the passages in Isaiah. And then he points out that the problem is a lack of responsiveness to the kingdom message. We played a flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang you a funeral song, and you didn't mourn. There is a lack of responsiveness to the authoritative claim of Jesus, and so what does he do? Well, he announces judgment that these pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon are better than you because they at least picked a side. But then, after all of this, after the announcement of the ministry of John, after the announcement of judgment, what does Jesus do in Matthew twenty-five? I mean, excuse me, Matthew eleven verse twenty-five. At that time, Jesus declared, through this prayer, he stakes his flag in the ground. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and that revealed them to little children. Again, do you hear our passage this morning? Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Do you hear the authoritative claim of Jesus? My Father has given me all things. All things belong to me. I am the King of the universe. Who would make such a claim? Only the Son of God. But if you're concerned about Losing something when it means submitting to Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 28. Jesus has all authority. I am king over everything. I am king over you whether you acknowledge me or not. But if you come to me in repentance, verse 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus doesn't use his authority to oppress you. Jesus uses his authority to serve you. Jesus uses his authority to lift burdens on your back. Now granted he gives you a new burden, but it's one that is worth it. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. Do you see the glory of Jesus here? That in his authority, in his right to reign over all things, what does he do? He holds his hands out to repentant sinners. So do you question how things will turn out if you follow Jesus? And this is a question for the macro part of your life. For making a claim to say my life will follow Jesus. But this is also a question for your daily life. For the micro moments of your life. Is Jesus your Lord? Do you wake up in the morning and set your agenda aside and pick his up? Do you see Jesus as making an authoritative claim over everything in your life? And are you rendering that to him in worship and in service? The mere fact that we can even do that is a sign of his graciousness and kindness to us. That we can repent. We can change our mind. God, I don't want to go to my own way. I want to go the way of Jesus because he is my king. And he has bought my life with his blood. See, Jesus uses his authority to lay down his life for sinners. So the question is, for all of us this morning, will we go our own way or will we respond to this authoritative claim of Jesus? Jesus has staked his flag. He has made a claim over everything. He has pointed with clarity that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophet uh, prophecies kicked off by the work of John. And so he calls everyone with the same message as John. Repent of your sins and turn. Will you turn? And this is the same message that we see also in Psalm 2, which we read earlier as our call to worship. We're pointed to the Son of God having authority over all things. And here is how that psalm ends. Here is the instruction for the hearers of this psalm. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth those who think they have any authority, those who think they have any claim, those of us who think we have any claim to our own life, those of us who think that we stand in authority over anything, we must serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. But here's the good news. Blessed are all who take refuge In him. Jesus comes in his authority to purify his temple. And we'll see as this fulfillment comes to fruition that it ultimately means the destruction of the physical temple. But then we read in Ephesians that by the work of the Spirit, God is building himself a new dwelling place, a new temple called the church. And it is within the church that we come in repentance. We turn from our sin. We turn to the Lord who has purchased our lives through his blood. Jesus has authority over your life. He has proven it without a shadow of a doubt. Will you turn in a sign of submission? Will you repent?